Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Moria Refugee Camp on the island of Lesvos, Greece, is the largest refugee camp in Europe. The camp has an official capacity of just over 2,000 people, but the population is now more than 17,000, with most people living in makeshift shelters in fields and olive groves on the island. In recent months, the number of refugees arriving at Lesvos by boat from Turkey has sharply increased. This is following the breakdown of a 2016 agreement between Turkey and the European Union in which Turkey largely stopped boat departures from its shores. Now, thousands of refugees are once again arriving in the Greek islands. Over 3,000 people arrived in Lesvos in November alone. Needless to say, the conditions on the island of Lesvos for refugees are horrendous. People are stuck there seemingly in perpetual limbo as their asylum claims are processed and as they await transfer to the European mainland. On the line with me to discuss the situation in Lesvos is Dr. Siana Shafi. She is the director of the NGO Katrinos, which provides health care to refugees in Greece. She recently returned from Camp Moria when we spoke in November, and in this conversation, she gives you a real sense of the harsh conditions faced by refugees stranded on an island in Europe. Since we spoke a few weeks ago, the government of Greece announced somewhat nebulous plans to close the camp and transfer its residents to what would be effective prisons on the mainland. It is unclear, though, if that will actually happen. This episode, meanwhile, gives you a grounds-eye view of how Europe's harsh treatment of refugees is being experienced by those stranded in Lesvos. So before we begin, I just want to thank a listener for bringing this topic and Dr. Shafi to my attention. Uh, You've benefited everyone when you reach out to me to suggest people I should interview or topics I should cover. Thank you. Thank you in advance for sending me an email. I read all your emails. I respond to all your emails. So please do use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me. I so appreciate it. The bonus episode I've posted for premium subscribers to the show is my conversation with the economist Jeffrey Sachs. He discusses his life and career, including how his upbringing in Detroit in the turbulent 1960s influenced his commitment to social justice, why he gravitated towards economics in college, and his experience helping countries transition from communism to market economies, and how he became so committed to global anti-poverty issues. That episode and dozens of other conversations with foreign affairs luminaries and scholars are available to premium subscribers. To become a premium subscriber, go to patreon.com slash global dispatches, or just follow the links on globaldispatchespodcast.com. You'll unlock dozens of episodes plus other rewards as well. If you have any questions about that all, please do send me an email. 
And this episode is brought to you by the Masters in Peace and Justice program at the Joan B. Crock School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. This program is designed for individuals seeking knowledge, skills, and practical experience to address a wider range of peace and social justice issues and includes hands-on field-based opportunities in Rwanda, Colombia, and Mexico. The program prepares students for careers in conflict resolution, human rights, social entrepreneurship, education, development, and advocacy. No GRE is required to apply, and part-time options are available. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace to learn more. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Siana Shafi, founder of the NGO Katrinos. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I actually founded Katrinos Healthcare. It's a, it's a medical charity, um, and um, I had no intention when I went out to volunteer as a humanitarian a medical volunteer four years ago in 2015, October 2015, uh, I had no intention of uh, setting an organization up myself. I actually thought I'd be working alongside or with uh, the greats like MSF and Medicine du Monde, uh, or even just helping the Greek authorities, because that's obviously where I found myself, was in Lesbos, Greece. Uh, where in the peak of the European migrant crisis in 2015, people, there were, I think there's about 100,000 uh, people crossing over in the boats, and we all remember the awful stories in that year. And that summer in particular was very long. So, so what, I mean, um, I'm reaching you in, in the UK. What compelled you to travel to, to Lesbos? Um, I've always been. Um, uh, I suppose do, doing or being an activist um, and not just watching from the sidelines is something that's been close to my heart. I'm originally Sri Lankan and um, during the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, my parents uh, were actually in Sri Lanka when that big tsunami struck. And I think, uh, you know, I've been just an ordinary doctor until that point of been raising my own family and always um, found myself in in a position where I was fundraising or supporting others to do what I thought needed to be done, uh, you know, donating medicines, packing things and sending across. Um, and I felt more and more compelled. And I think when this 
uh, affair of the European crisis started to hit the borders of Europe, which is, of course, next door neighbour to the UK, um, it felt it was in my backyard. It was felt like it was just so close to home. And I um, and I think my children were old enough, well, just about what well, my youngest at the time was three years old. And I felt able to and had the support of my family, of obviously, to, to leave him and uh, go, you know, physically just get on a plane and go. And, and that, so that was 2015, and, and now we're speaking that, at, at 2019. And uh, you have recently returned from what is Europe's largest refugee camp, Moriah. Can, can you describe what Moriah is like? How many people are there? Who is there? Uh, and general conditions of the camp. So Moria is how we call the camp in Lesbos, the largest uh, camp, certainly in the whole of Greece. It is where I started my um, uh, activities when I went initially as a as a sort of a solitary volunteer. Um, and sadly, uh, four years later, just about to enter my fifth winter, um, I'm I'm devastated actually to say that there are so many people still trapped uh, over there. So just in this last quarter, from about September onwards, there has been a sudden influx again, and I think obviously with uh, Greece uh, bordering on places like Turkey and not very far from the very challenged Middle East, in particular Syria. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> and the recent bombings in the nor northern uh, borders of Syria, um, I think I've seen people who've come that on this particular trip, I've actually met with families who were in Darzon, the the area of Syria that was being bombed. So it, it is, um, it, 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 I don't, you know, I'm, I'm speechless really to, to describe the situation because obviously when we went in 2015, it, it was um, the, the crisis. We, we saw it in the news and we, you know, and, and lots of people responded. Um, and now I think the, the, the layer of difficulty is that this is now more or less a forgotten matter. And it's not in uh, the public eye anymore. The media don't seem to give it enough coverage anymore. And yet there are people there, families, just like the ones I saw in the beginning and possibly worse now because I've, I think the bit that's really close to me is that I see so many old people, so the elderly who, you know, who deserve to be settling down in whatever place they've chosen to be in, having lived their lives, brought up their children, done their work, uh, they're fleeing, they're fleeing for their lives. So who arrives at Lesbos? Who are the refugees? Are we talking mostly Syrians at this point? Or are, are now you're getting a number of, I would imagine, like Afghans that are also making it to Lesbos? I think the um, the position of Lesbos, um, sort of Central Asia bordering with um, Central Europe, uh, means that uh, we are getting people from a variety of different places. And actually, I, I am baffled sometimes about the types of people I see there. The majority have been the Syrians. I mean, they they some of them have almost walked across Turkey to get there, uh, which is incredible. I mean, they've certainly been through 
Turkish mountains, knee high in snow. Um, there are quite a significant people um, coming from Afghanistan, uh, and it is very sad for them because they actually get deprioritized in terms of the um, asylum procedures. There are also people from Mosul, Iraq. So that's probably the majority. That's the top three. Mm. Um, increasingly in the last year, we've noticed more African people coming from um, uh, uh, the Republic of Congo and um, uh, also Somali people. Um, and their journeys have been, you know, something else. I know a lot of them do get on the boats from northern Libya, which is a much more treacherous sea. Uh, and perhaps that's why they've, uh, you know, maybe they've picked um, a member of their family, like most of the young men from the Somali background have been chosen, have been the chosen ones to, to so the parents and the sisters and everybody else pool their money and just given it to them to take one flight to either Iran or Turkey. And then they have to do the rest on foot and by boat, like like everybody else. So I think it's a very well-known uh, route for migrants. Um, it's been going on for years and years. There's people from Pakistan, for example, who are settled in Greece. Mm. Um, and in, in my time, I've even come across people from my own um, homeland, which is Sri Lanka. Hmm. So what is like a typical process in which an individual arrives at Lesvos and, and seeks asylum. I take it that, you know, they, they make it across from Turkey on some rickety boat and end up on, on a shore. Like, what are some typical stories you could share? Um, I, I have so many, actually, but I let me think of one that, just to give you an idea of the types of people who are risking their lives on these, they are rubber dinghy boats, and they're often not i mean they they might be the kind of boats you you sort of put on big um cruise liners um in in case of an emergency you know that you might need to use but these are being used as a main route because i think they're being seen as a sort of a disposable method of transport um but the types of people uh, that i've personally come across are so there's there's quite a significant number of women and children so particularly for this route and particularly the ones coming from Syria, what happened in their case is initially, um, before the borders were closed, the men left their women and children thinking they would go ahead, um, you know, check the, the route out, make sure it was safe, <laughs> ironically, um, and uh, perhaps get to Germany or Austria or somewhere and, you know, start the process and then and then um, end up uh, instigating the reunification. Now, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on on the asylum procedures, but I know the reunification pathway, which means you've got a member of a family already in the EU state, and you can then be re reunited with them at some stage, has probably the most success rate. So mm. people who began their journey two years ago would easily have been reunited with them. What they didn't anticipate was then having to and. I think a lot, a lot of them. That the plan was that they would come, um, come back and get their wives and children once they sorted all the paperwork. And this is, you know, this is what any family man would do, right? But of course, then things started kicking off. The war got worse. The borders, politically, people were building wall, walls um, to stop crossings, 
uh, into Europe, and suddenly women and children um, found themselves in the position that they would then have to make this journey on their own. So one of, I would, I'm sad to say, but a typical example is I'm thinking of um, a young woman who's about 23, and she travelled um, with four children under the age of five. So her youngest was actually six weeks old. And there was no life vest that would actually fit the little tot. Um, and her eldest was five. And the middle two, who were like four and or three and two, um, were in nappies. So when she 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 made the journey across by herself, having given birth during the war in Syria, uh, in really awful circumstances. You know, people's uh, kitchens and uh, going and walking in labour through the curfew at, in the dead of the night. Then, so she she had to risk um, herself and her children on this journey because what she was fleeing was obviously far worse. Um, but. Then I, I, you know, the family I met recently—a family of with six um, six children—and the youngest was six months. And this was just two weeks ago. Um, there was a moment when they got on that boat, and they, the the parents in particular, thought, you know, what have we done? We because in, in on their first boat, actually, their engine stopped working somewhere in the middle of the sea. And I, I, I can't remember the details of how they got out of it, but they did manage to, or they noticed that there was a leak and they managed to persuade the um, whoever was in charge of the, um, the, 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 the rudder to steer back to shore, back to the Turkish shore. And um, th- there's a moment where they just think, what have we done? You know, we've actually put ourselves from possible death uh, not just ourselves, but ourselves and our children, to potentially certain death. Um, and there is a huge moment of regret when they're in the in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the sea. Um, there, there is actually a YouTube video which um, we we um, had recorded. Um, if I think if you search our name, Katrina's Healthcare, uh, where some of our interviewees. Um, I'll try to silence that. Some of our interviewees tried to d- describe this this kind of the darkness and the sense of no return once you're on that boat. Hmm. You've that's it. So a, a key moment uh, in the sort of story of uh, refugee migration from Turkey to Lesbos was the 2016 Turkey EU deal. Uh, which you know essentially stated that the EU would pay Turkey you know billions of dollars, uh, and in return Turkey would sort of clamp down on uh, migrants and migration and refugee flows over that that water route to Lesbos, and also significantly I think for the people who were in Greece that that Greece would not move any of those refugees from the islands to mainland Europe. Um, is that sort of a fair a fair uh, description of of that EU deal? And it seemed, and what effect did that have overall on migration flows? Sure, um, very uh, very interesting plan, wasn't it? Um, uh, and um, I would say, in my experience as a medical doctor working on the ground and observing what's happened, um, it failed to deliver. 
So for many reasons, um, and I'll touch on some of them. One was that the boats were coming too fast in um, and the Greek processing system, by the time they've ruled out someone who's not vulnerable, given that I've just said most of those people coming across had some vulnerability criteria. So they mostly women, mostly with children, mostly some, quite a lot were pregnant, many are elderly. So what what was happening was actually it was very difficult to find uh, what I suppose the assumption was that there were going to be a lot of young, fit men who were just migrating for economical reasons. That was one challenge. Um, the So the, by, by the time they, for every something like every 10 boats that came across, one would set back to Turkey every month. Um, and so this is how Moria ended up where it is with this over-congestion of people. Because essentially um, you had people, you know, continuing to come. Uh, absolutely. And, but, but Greece was not able to process the asylum claims, neither were they letting people on the mainland. So you had these camps that were built for a fraction of the number of people suddenly getting overcrowded and more overcrowded. And from my understanding is, you know, we're, we're speaking in November 2019 that in recent uh, weeks and, and, and recent months, and, and you alluded to it before, you're now seeing an increase in the number of people coming from Turkey to Greece because that deal is kind of falling apart a little bit. Turkey and, and it's part of like broader, you know, political disputes between Turkey and the EU. And so now Turkey is letting more more refugees come through or not cracking down yeah. as they did before. Yeah, so absolutely. I've this, got a yeah. I've got a nice example of that actually because one of our one of our patients um that we've been looking after recently is a lady in her her late 60s. Um she is a breast cancer um uh actually survivor I would say. She's had a mastectomy um 4 years ago and um in Syria she had her uh, most of her chemo and her radiotherapy, and you know, for all intents and purposes, she's a success story in terms of actually surviving the cancer. Mm-hmm. But and, she, and through her journey from Syria through Turkey, she has always been um, able to get um, a reasonable amount of care. So she's used to having six monthly checkups, for example. And then she ends up in Morian, and uh, just before she she got on the boat from Turkey, she she found another lump, um, which she brought to the attention of her Turkish doctors. And uh, the it, it's very interesting what what was said to her was that, look, um, whatever you need, you'll 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 be going to Europe, and uh, it'll be better for you there. And so they sort of ushered her along. Um, to say, just um, just go, just go, and whatever we do won't won't be as good as what you can get over there. So just go, go for it. Mm. And of course, she's ended up in a tent, um, caring. She's 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 travelled with her husband and a few 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 girls in their family. And worst of all, she's caring for her her mother, her disabled mother, who's in her nearly in her eighties, late seventies. Uh, who's very immobile, um, sits in the tent, um, uh, and unable to mobilize to even a, well, look, the toilets, we're talking about uh, chemical boxes here, which are overflowing, and some of them, the doors are broken. I mean, your, 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 
pets wouldn't use it. I don't know how, uh, you know, humans are supposed to, but this old woman has to be um, cared for in sight to you. So wherever she's sitting, and we as a, an organisation, we we provided, for example, some, some adult nappies to make life tiny but easier. But we're now getting into winter, the colder months. And so this woman who survived breast cancer got, got a new lump that she's could be something could be nothing that we're obviously helping to to investigate now um is also then caring for her older mother and and she's uh, well the, 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 there's just just one example but everywhere i look there's older people who are just in a similar state they said we really didn't think that this is what it was going to be like and they've been there about 2 months now living in the rough and and my understanding is many people have been there for years as they wait for their asylum claims to be processed. And, you know, to the extent that their claims are being processed at all, um, there seems to be like a lot of just great un uncertainty uh, among people who are there, you know, about what their future actually holds. Completely. Um, I, I I think the the new recent government change in Greece, uh, who who was elected on the basis of more aggressive uh, manoeuvres for dealing with migrants, um, hasn't helped. Um, and I think the the one young man I personally know who who now works with us in our clinic as a social worker, um, he he's been there on Lesbos for three years. So he's tried legal methods, illegal methods to get out. Um, and unfortunately, and I think he actually faces his final decision this coming week. And he's really very nervous about it. So but, um, can you yeah. describe just conditions at the camp more broadly? Where are people sleeping? Um, you know, how are people occupying their time during during the day? It seems like there's just like a lot of waiting. What in general are the conditions at the camp and and you know, what can you tell people about what life is like inside of it? Um, <laughs> you know, um, I I don't know if, again, I'll have the words to describe the state of the camp, but um, the the situation is that this, the, the facility, the, the central facility that these people are detained in was actually built as a prison to detain the most... Um, dangerous criminals and they were to be placed so it's like an Alcatraz I suppose back in the day that was the intention so it's all reversed now so that it's now become the registration and uh, main centre for for holding people while they're making decisions the capacity for this at best would be 3,000 um, I would say more like 2,000 because the place was really not in a, you know it wasn't built for purpose for this purpose um, so that's that's the the kind of the core part of it, and that's kind of where our the police are, the medical facilities are, the UNHCR, right inside the camp, spreading outwards. Now, if you see any aerial views of of the, the camp of Moria, uh, you'll see all along dotted around um, the circumference, sort of I would say easily a kilometer to two outwards, there will be now. Uh, makeshift tents, uh, pop-up tents, people using bits of tarpaulin, bits of olive twigs to build um, some facilities for them to uh, protect themselves from the elements. Um, when I was there in 2015, that certainly happened. So 
to, to one side of Moria, there's the infamous, uh, it, we used to refer to it as the jungle. Uh, it was basically an olive grove where people made, made it their home. Now it's extended to the rear and to the other side as well. So it's almost, you know, all around circumferentially. Um, and it's devastating. It's really, really devastating. They, they, at the time when things got a little bit better, I would say in 2017, when when lots of NGOs, maybe some EU money was pumped in, um, they tried to create wash facilities, so provided solar heating panels, uh, which, by the way, only work uh, when there is sunshine in the summer. And Lesvos is very well known to have some very harsh winters. Um they will have chemical toilets, which when I have most recently been, I, I see that these are not really being tended to. So with chemical toilets, you know, someone needs to take them away and replace them when they get full or whatever. Um, and most of us, if we go to a concert or something like that, we might be used to using something like that for a day, a few days max. But, you know, you're talking about people living there for years, like you said. So and on average, Two years is the turnaround time, um, and most um, pain, uh, heartbreakingly, I think, painfully, people are not being prioritised anymore for vulnerability. So there's so many vulnerable people um, there. They, uh, I think, they've just sort of lost the plot. The authorities, and so like um, if you're like a pregnant woman with a disabled with a child with a disability, you know, they'll, you won't get any priority at this point. Not anymore. So all the, whatever housing UNHCR was offering um, is congested. It's all gone. So this, and then what they sometimes are trying to do is they'll take maybe a thousand, 800 to a thousand people and they'll transfer them out of Lesbos to Athens and the mainland. Um, now, as an organization, Katrinos Healthcare, we actually started our services, although I began as a volunteer in, in, in Lesvos, as I became formalized as an NGO, my first um, responsibility was to camps um, in very, very far away places in the mainland, we're talking about two, three hundred kilometers apart, um, and in the middle of, you know, isolated, desolated pieces of Greece. Um, and these people, when they're transferred to the mainland, what's happening is they suddenly realise they've been, you know, put from the frying pan into the fire. And then a lot of them are secretly trying to come back to Lesbos because at least there it was all kind of, it's turning into a little village now, you know, where people are setting up uh, shops and trying to make, I mean, the basic facilities are still pretty bad, but at least they can get food and water or they know where to go to get things like that mm. um, and get them cheap. Whereas if you're in the middle of um, potentially, you know, nowhere um, and there are no buses that come maybe two or three times a week, um, then, yeah, it's not ideal. And I felt very, very, very bad when one of my patients with leukemia, for example, she was so happy to be, um, this was six months ago, she was prioritised to leave Lesbos. And I have to say, I was really worried because I knew that her journey was overnight on a ferry to get to Athens. And then she had a, something like a seven hour coach ride to get to the final destination in a camp somewhere. And I just wonder and I, I, I pray and I wonder how she is. I pray that she's OK. 
Um, but yeah, it's all it's all a, a mess. And I, I, I keep, you know, in, in preparing for this interview, I, you know, Googled the camp. I started reading up on, on recent news articles on it. And, you know, you know, as of like a day ago, there was news of like a, just like a six month old or nine month old child dying of dehydration. Yes. Yes. With uh, dehydration due to um, just gastroenteritis, gastroenteritis mm-hmm. and respiratory infections. So your cough skulls and ultimately pneumonia because of the harsh conditions they're living in. Uh, top of our list in terms of types of illnesses people are coming into the clinic with. Um, It's a reality. And, and, you know, just every year, earlier this year, we had a death of a young man um, who died uh, from just exposure. Um, You know, he was he was like in his 20s and he we'd seen him before. He had no particular medical conditions, but he died just from exposure. And, and that's not something you expect in in civilized Europe. And and we're speaking, of course, with winter looming, and harsh conditions yes. on on a, on on the head. And and as you said at the outset, this is like a, just a forgotten crisis. Yes, and I think the fact that it's forgotten makes this crisis upon a crisis. So, um, myself, I myself and the volunteers who are incredible in supporting us. So we have a lot of young doctors, nurses, clinicians from all over the world. They actually are the reason why we're able to keep going. Um, they, many of them come back over and over again. Currently on the ground, we have a Canadian um, uh, emergency doctor. I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning her, Dr. Um, Chrissy. Um, she She's come back the third time. Um, to volunteer six weeks with us. Um, and people like her being on the ground mean that I don't have to do so much of the clinical work myself, um, but I can be out here talking to people and uh, making sure that you know I do my part in, in creating as much awareness as possible. And if people want to, to help you, help your organization, or raise awareness on their own, what, what can they do? Well, they can check our website out. We're also on Facebook, Kitrinos Healthcare. Kitrinos, in case you don't know how to spell it, is actually the Greek word for yellow. Uh, and it comes about because we started our, our work in um, after I finished with my backpack, I upgraded to a yellow ambulance that we um, bought and drove over from the Netherlands. And we used to run a mobile clinic. So following the people all over, all across, so, you know, it's been up to Idomini, the border of Idomini, and now it's back in Lesbos. But um, that's why it's called Kitrinos. But yeah, look us up on our website. You'll see uh, um, many opportunities on uh, um, how to join us. Um, it's a no obligation initially. It's just the form that you fill in to indicate your availability, your skills. Um, and then mm-hmm. we try up. We, we rely on people actually coming um, and then hopefully, you know, t- sharing uh, what they see with, with the rest of the, the world. Well, well, thank you so much for your time and, and, of course, for your work. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dr. Siana Shafi. That was very, very helpful and a sobering, I think, ground's eye view of an ongoing tragedy in Europe. All right, we'll see you next time. As always, please do get in touch with me if you have suggestions of people you want me to interview, topics you want me to cover. I love hearing from you guys. Thank you. Bye.